<laughs> yeah, I've had kind of a scratchy, not like cold scratchy, but just overuse scratchy throat lately. So I might be muting myself and coughing occasionally, but hopefully too much singing. Go. Yeah, <laughs> it's mostly in the shower. Yes. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Joining Andrew and myself uh, is a fellow podcaster, Brody Sharp, uh, who is the operator of the Run Smarter podcast, as well as an online physiotherapy uh, clinic specializing in uh, treating injured runners, and that's the Breakthrough Running Clinic. Um, Brody actually found us, and he reached out because he thought there was some uh, some synergies between the the two shows that we do, and uh, suggested that he had some uh, some relevant information to impart. And of course, we're always interested in hearing from from listeners of our show, and uh, certainly uh, hearing from experts in the field. So Brody and I got to talking and uh, realized that there was some really there's some really valuable conversations that we could have uh, between the three of us. So. We, uh, we worked out a show that uh, we think is going to be really helpful to all of you guys listening. Brody, thanks very much for coming on and welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. And hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yes, thank you very much. And I love doing episodes like this because for me, um, I can sit back and I can ask the uneducated questions from an engineer standpoint <laughs> as opposed to a physiologist standpoint. But um, some of the the actual injury mechanisms I've, I've suffered through before, and it's always been a question with overuse and overtraining and how far can you push it and what is the best form, things like that. And I haven't had a great answer to a lot of them so far. I'm sure the information is out there, but it's always nice to get another opinion and to understand exactly how things interact because these direct conversations are so much easier than trying to absorb everything from an online article. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's also nice just to get direct information from those who are very well versed in like evidence-based practice and it's very tough for like once once the research is out there for it to ripple into, you know, the the consciousness of the the athletes and it takes a very very long time for that to happen so it's good when it is just like direct that's an excellent point brody i uh like the perfect example was last night i i run some mondays with a local run group and uh just for myself i don't i'm not involved in any kind of coaching capacity with them and at the end of this run which was a little bit more spirited than i would have liked um there was a a fellow runner there who was uh who was stretching her calves and like doing all these stretches after the run and i was like well you know are you I just ask cuz i'm a you know i'm a i'm nosy and so i'm like are you calves sore are you are you hurt and she goes you know what i have this this hip flexor issue that's really bugging me and it hurts when I run and I've been told it's because I don't stretch it enough. And so I'm, I've been trying to find stretches for this hip flexor injury and uh, how should I stretch it? And then my answer was like, maybe you shouldn't be stretching it. That's kind of, you know, injuries, especially like soft tissue stuff, they don't really like to be stretched too much uh, unless there's a very specific reason to do that. So to your point, Brody, the reason I I, I uh, run through this anecdote is, is there's all of this you know, kind of anecdotal or, or, you know, old, I, I call it old gym teacher wisdom, um, where we were taught this stuff from 20, 30 years ago, sometimes that was the, the accepted knowledge at the time that is maybe no longer the case. And it does take a, a little while, as you say, for, uh, more modern thinking on things to, uh, filter through and percolate 
uh, those are mixed metaphors to <laughs> to the running public at large. Yeah, and I, I think when I first graduated, they came up with the stat that like once the research is out there, it takes twenty years for it to ripple into health professionals and then into like their clients, whoever they're teaching. So twenty years is a very long time, and yeah. Yeah, I love like my passion is breaking down these misconceptions that common runners hold and the stretching is right up my alley. So um, I know we're talking about uh, injuries today and we'll bust a couple of myths along the way. But, yeah, it's a big passion of mine just giving the runners a lot of clarity really and um, giving them control around if they do have an injury or if they do have niggles, what they need to do about it. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's kind of, you know, listeners, I'm sure you've clued in by now that that the topic that we're going to we're going to um, pick Brody's brain about is is injury. And we did go back and forth on a few possible ones, but I think this one is the, the easiest to package and probably the most relevant, immediately relevant to folks, especially now with, uh, you know, well, look, we didn't really have much of a race season in North America this year or, or really one at all. But Typically, this time of year is when you would have all the injured runners in North America. And so today, um, we narrowed it down to three because we could be here much, much longer than the, the hour and a bit that we have uh, allotted. We, so we narrowed it down to three to talk about because we think that these three are the most relevant to runners and triathletes as well. Because, of course, you know, triathletes, triathletes will run as, uh, as part of training and racing. So just to uh, just to introduce the, these three conditions, and then I'll let uh, Brody talk about them. Uh, we're going to look at uh, plantar fasciitis, uh, patellofemoral pain, and uh, high hamstring or proximal hamstring tendinopathy. And uh, what I'm going to ask him to do is for each of these three, and we'll see how how we go, um, to really describe what the issue is, uh, talk about some of the symptoms. So you know, if you're feeling some of these symptoms, you know obviously go see a professional. That's the, that's the best advice we're, we're going to give you, but maybe some things you can catch yourself. Um, and then talk about some of the, some of the prescriptive, de- prescriptive, maybe physiotherapy work. Um, and then the prognosis for recovery. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. I can act as a bit of a case study here because I've actually suffered from some, several of these. So the patellofemoral pain syndrome, as well as suffering from plantar fasciitis in the past, So I'll be able to ask these questions about recovery and and provide my own perspective on the situation uh, because I did manage to get through them. And some of them were earlier in my life when I was still growing, Um, but they did coincide with being involved in different sports. So it'll be interesting to hear how all that fits in with the common causes. So why don't we start with the uh, the first one? Uh, why don't we go foot up? So plantar (laughs) as just to have some kind of uh, some kind of order. Plantar fasciitis, Brody. What is it? How do we get it? What do we? How does it? What does it feel like? And what can we do about it? Yeah, cool. So, um, the plantar fasciitis—it's more accurately termed plantar fasciopathy because um, you know a lot of um, change in terminology over the years. The itis part of fasciitis indicates there's some sort of inflammation going on, okay. and we now know that if there is some inflammation it's definitely not the primary driver of pain so we get rid of that itis and put in the plantar fasciopathy or plantar heel pain is just like an umbrella term that a lot of people throw around but this is a very common one and it like all these injuries they're going to be coincided with some rapid change in training because the body does an amazing job at adapting if you're very gradual and you have a really nice process to um, progress through your training 
but there's usually an acute change. It's usually doing too much too soon, or there's a rapid change in, say, things like terrain, doing hills, rapid change in shoe type, um, which can be very common with plantar fasciitis. And that would be usually if someone heads towards like the minimalist side of running shoes, if they've done that way too rapidly, or they've done some barefoot walking or um, uh, some like minimalist shoe running to and transition too much. Uh, but also you see uh, very, very commonly with people who are on their feet all day, just with their occupation, like chefs and like a nurse, people who have a rapid change in their work circumstances or um, daily hmm. life. And so sometimes it's a combination of the running and something outside of the running that um, combines the two. And then there's just a spike in load, but that's usually what you see, just some uh, exceeding its ability to adapt or tolerate what load you're putting it through. It can be very, well, extremely gradual for a lot of people, unless you've had a huge spike in load. Sometimes it can just be super gradual and just like come out of nowhere. And all of a sudden you've had it for three weeks because it starts off with this really subtle stiffness. It can usually be or most commonly with your first few steps of the morning and during your activity, everything's totally fine. But then you wake up and you're walking around in barefoot, bare feet. And you're just like, man, this it's just feeling really stiff and a little bit sore underneath my heel. Not too sure what it is, but it's really hard to identify because the rest of your day is totally pain-free and you're running totally pain-free. But as the weeks go on, it just becomes a little bit more annoying. Uh, the pain becomes a little bit more pronounced. <laughs> the time in the morning it takes to become symptom free gets longer and longer so at once it was five minutes until it settled now it's up to you know 35 minutes and then you've found out that you've got plantar fasciitis and you've had it for you know four weeks and you had no idea so that's when it can become particularly tricky hard to identify hard to pick the original cause and essentially what we're seeing from the uh, pathology side of thing is just an overload of the tissue and very, very commonly uh, directly underneath the heel, uh, directly on like the big toe side. So like the inside of the heel and mm -hmm. very characteristically stiffness and soreness with your first few steps in the morning. I just had a bit of um, kind of a tingly feeling on my neck and an oh shit moment because <laughs> I've actually been going through this not realizing that it could be characteristic of plantar fasciitis. But um, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, I've noticed it's a little bit stiff in the morning and it takes a little while for it to tone down, but that's a little bit worrying. So I'm listening very attentively. I get that a lot. <laughs> what's really what's really troubling about this, um, this condition, it seems based on your description, is that we're as runners, you know, as well, when we're new runners, maybe we're not conditioned to it at all. But as experienced runners, as we're told by coaches and, and physios and other therapists to pay attention to symptoms and pain during activity, um, to have this uh, this particular diagnosis present outside of activity primarily, um, and that that maybe you know maybe our our radars are turned off first thing in the morning to this kind of stuff where they would be much more attuned when we're actually running. So that's that makes it. Uh, I take your point about it being difficult to catch early. And it just reminds me of the classic boiling a frog. Analogy. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought of too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's where everyone goes. Yep. Um, maybe society, society has an interesting obsession with boiling frogs, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, no, it's, it's the same thing where a lot of these pains uh, or these injuries just are, are niggling at the start and you just kind of disregard them as maybe something that is onset by just muscle soreness or fatigue. 
and knowing that it can be indicative of something much more serious and much more chronic, um, that's it's concerning, but it's also something you need to know. Um, it's sometimes it sucks to get bad news, but I would rather get bad news and let it go for a long time and then just be completely put on the sidelines and not able to train or compete or, or do anything because it's such a big part of my life. I think also, um, it's, it's mainly just like accurately interpreting symptoms a lot of the time. And if like tendinopathies are a classic one they like in the early stages, they warm up and then you can run pain free and you can do all your exercises pain free. And it's not till the next morning where you're hobbling around. And some people can just interpret that as, Oh, it's just old age. Yeah. Morning stiffness is totally fine. And when it comes to exercising pain free, they interpret it as, okay, I must be fine to run on this injury. Or I must be fine to continue doing what I'm doing. But yeah, it's, it's having the right education and accurately trying to interpret what's going on, which makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, really excellent description of what the symptoms are and, uh, and what to watch out for, especially outside of activity. So then uh, moving on, what's the, what, so here you are, let's say you're, let's say you're really good about it and you caught it early and let's say you're Andrew Buckrell and you're getting up, <laughs> getting up out of bed. Anyone, but. <laughs> uh, you're getting up out of bed and you're, you're feeling a little bit of stiffness in your, in your feet and your heel. Uh, what do you, what do you do? How do you change your, both your training routine and would you add any sort of, um, therapeutic exercise to that? Yeah. And if we've caught it early enough and it's just like stiffness over the last week, what we can do is have a look on our, our training the past, you know, 10 days, see if there was any spikes in training, see if there was any changes, maybe you're spending a little bit more time running with, um, less support. Uh, maybe you're, you've changed your terrain a bit too much. And if we've caught it early enough, it can just be as simple as swapping something out. Maybe just having uh, more supportive shoes for the next week or so. And then it just settles down and mm-hmm. maybe it's just changing your training. Maybe it's just backing off your mileage for a week or two, still continuing to maintain your fitness and still staying strong, but just backing off a little bit and then it just goes away. And Sometimes that's the ideal scenario, which very rarely happens. But if you've caught it early enough, that's that's the first thing that you would do. The next thing, if it's a little bit more aggravated, a li- the pain is a little bit more pronounced. The I'll explain this. Like I tend to explain this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral a lot. And plantar fasciitis is a very, very classic case of this. And okay. what happens with people is when they get pain, they think, okay, I've overdone things. Um, you know, I've bumped up my mileage. This makes sense. Let me just rest for a week and let me calm down these symptoms. The body will heal. And then I'll go back to running. And that just makes intuitive sense. And what happens is when that tissue is flared up, it's sensitive to pressure and it's sensitive to load. And it actually temporarily becomes a little bit weaker and not weaker in terms of strength, but weaker in terms of what it can tolerate. And if you address that with complete rest, what happens is you're taking a a weakened structure and further weakening it with complete rest. And so when you get back to running, Hmm. it flares up again because you've exceeded that, that weak structure, you've exceeded its load capacity, flares up again and you interpret it like, oh, maybe it hasn't healed yet. Let me take another week or two off. And then you're combating that with rest again and then it gets weaker and weaker and weaker then all of a sudden it's not running all of a sudden it's walking for or shopping for a couple of hours or 
uh, being on your feet at work, that starts to flare it up because now it's so weak that it can't tolerate you standing all day. And so it flares up, it gets weaker and you start uh, finding supportive shoes. You start like avoiding standing. You start doing things. Uh, you start like modifying things throughout the day so it doesn't load up the the fascia. And then all of a sudden it gets weaker and weaker and weaker and you follow this over months and months and months. And then they, they get to a point where they come in, they see a physio and they say, oh, my God, I can't walk barefoot for five minutes without this flaring up. And you follow their path of the last six months and it's just they're trying to address this weakened structure with more and more rest and it becoming more and more weak. So this is why I call it the, the pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral because they literally spiral down out of control. And I, I just want to introduce that concept to people before I talk about how we combat this. So the earlier we can catch this symptom, we need to address it with strength and we need to address it with what you can load or how much you can load this structure without it flaring up. And that could be as simple as calf raises. It could be as simple as um, the, the evidence really supports um, doing some slow but really heavy calf raises, particularly if you put, say, like a towel underneath your big toe. So you've got that big okay. toe extension and then you come up into a calf raise. So you're really loading up and stretching that fascia under load. Um, that can be really nice, but we need to have a bit of guidance around where your starting point is, making sure that the load is adequate, making sure that we're interpreting the symptoms appropriately because you can easily flare it up if you do too much. But you can obviously make it worse if you underload it. So it's finding that optimal balance. Um, and the evidence really is really clearly laid out that loading up the fascia is really nice for recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that I, I've heard that. What I what I'd never heard of was the uh, the downward spiral that you described. So that is that is definitely eye opening. And thinking back to my you know my coaching career, I've definitely seen it happen. Where you know yeah, and you're absolutely right. The kind of and again, this is the 1970s gym teacher advice: is if you're if you're hurt, you you sit, you rest. Um, which I I agree based on a lot of stuff that I've seen that that's usually not the, the the optimal strategy but i didn't realize that you can actually have short-term weakness of the tissues happen um and then that would of course exacerbate the the downward spiral interesting stuff yeah absolutely and i i, I want to just add as well that what the it's the tissues themselves are just like unable to tolerate load temporarily so if it's a significant flare-up complete rest is good but it's for like a day or two. It's really just settling down, making sure that the injury itself just becomes less sensitive. But yeah, that it's a two-day maximum rest before you're starting to load it up again. Interesting. And when you're talking about calf raises, for for example, um, you're talking about loaded and uh, and fairly slow. Are you emphasizing uh, concentric, eccentric movements? Uh, which part of that movement or both? Um, the jury's out on that. It's it's similar to um, Achilles. And just like loading in general, we used to think that eccentrics was really, really good for tendons. And in this case, the plantar fascia really responds very similar to a tendon and an injured tendon. So um, a ton of research came out supporting eccentrics and how well tendons do responding to really slow, heavy eccentrics. And now there's competing evidence coming out that shows that concentric is just as effective. Hmm. And so it's really hard to determine which one's more superior than the other. But what we know is either of them are, are really good. So um, you can do eccentrics and it'll work. You can probably do eccentrics and concentrics at the same time. That It's probably going to be just as effective. 
Okay. Yeah. So, so listeners, just go slow on both and you'll be fine. It sounds like. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and I've actually been doing this as we're talking. So <laughs> just uh, my, my training regimen right away. <laughs> nice. We've already talked about what would happen if you caught it early and you you dealt with it primarily through through load maintenance um, and maybe changing the the kind of training stimulus if you're you know all of a sudden running all trails um, or changing shoes. But what if it is quite pronounced? What if you know you you weren't keen and didn't catch it super early, and now you are in that more kind of moderate or or severe state? What's the prognosis with the with the correct kind of treatment? And I know that's a very broad question, so you know you can play it as safe as you like, Brody. Yeah, no, I'm ha- I'm happy to answer that. That you have to interpret, like, just get a detailed history of the what they can tolerate, and then try and find a starting point strength-wise. If if it's really significantly flared up, uh, I like to do things like taping. I can do some like release or massage without trying to irritate directly underneath the heel, sort of like the arch, like further away from that irritation point. Um, Orthotics can also be really helpful for some, but what I like to do is tape someone up to kind of mimic an orthotic. And if symptoms calm down, then I know they're the type of person that would benefit from an orthotic. So then I just give them a really cheap one. um, Just to, what it does is just hold or just help support the plantar fascia for when they're standing and walking around. So it just like reduces Mm -hmm. that sensitivity, but also you can get these like um, insoles that just slide into your shoe and have like this gel cap underneath your heel. And what it does is just like dissipate a lot of the load and similar to a lot of other tendons in the lower leg, tendons don't like, like compression, especially if they've been irritated. And I know we'll get into proximal hamstring tendinopathy later, but um, tendons really, if they're flared up, they really don't like low, uh, continuous levels of compression. So, um, sometimes that gel heel cap within the shoe can help dissipate a lot of that load and dissipate that compression to different areas and can help settle it down for a couple of days. And then as soon as we're able to, we're starting some really low loading and just trying to see where our starting point can be. Uh, I will, um, reiterate the orthotics will depend on the person sometimes orthotics makes it worse for someone sometimes it makes it better similar to um it's just like trial and error we can't base it on any characteristics like their foot type or um that kind of thing so it's just trial and error that's why i like the tape first nice cheap tape just put it on if they respond really well then i'm like you're probably going to benefit some orthotics give them a really cheap orthotic and see if they feel better or not. And then that can be a nice intervention to settle down this really sensitive structure so that it can start tolerating some more load in a couple of days. And then we just slowly work our way back up that spiral and see if we can tolerate more and more and more. And yeah, sometimes just some really nice, uh, making sure you wear supportive shoes when you first wake up in the morning can be really nice. Um, You can even start loading up the fascia in, in shoes so that it's less, uh, it's got that support. It's got a little bit of cushion, but we're still loading up that way. And then we're just, once we load up the fascia with some, um, weighted calf raises, then we just pay attention to how it's feeling later on the day, how it's feeling the next morning. And if the morning stiffness or the morning soreness is no worse, it means that what we've put it through has been successful. Mm. And then you progress up that. And then at what point are you able to, at what point do you think it's safe to start reintroducing some running, maybe some run walking? 
Yeah. In this example, if someone's really severe, um, I just work my way through progression that kind of makes sense to me. I go through, okay, how much walking can you do? If you can tolerate high levels of walking, say for half an hour or an hour, I'd say that's great. Let's start um, hopping, jumping on the spot. How does that feel? Mm -hmm. If that's asymptomatic and they're feeling like they've got good control, they're feeling like they've got good strength and power, then I'd say, look, you're probably ready for a a walk run program. And I do give people this PDF that I have just a really gradual return to run program, which is similar to like a couch to 5k or like, I think everyone's seen these similar concepts. You're just walking for a minute, then jogging for a minute. Yeah. That I send out too. It's yeah, uh, exactly. It's like, it's on the wall of every like physiotherapist ever. (laughs) And what we're doing is we're interpreting symptoms along the way. We're seeing, okay, what are symptoms like when you first start running? What are symptoms like after you run, once you've cooled down and what are symptoms like the next morning? And we're taking a snapshot of those um, timestamps and saying, okay, have I tolerated this run? Because it might not, it might not um, become pronounced until the next morning. And if symptoms are usually like a two out of 10 that last 10 minutes the next morning and you do a run, you wake up the next morning and it's a two out of 10 that lasts 10 minutes, that's a successful run the day before because it's no worse. If there is a mm-hmm. flare up, that means we've done too much and we need to um, take a couple of steps back. But then if everything's good, we just continue in progress. And I like to say to my runners all the time, if we build you up to your running like 5Ks, up to 10Ks and you're still a two out of 10 pain and you're still only lasting, like the symptoms are only lasting 10 minutes. That's, um, it's successful. We call that like uh, the, you're tolerating what we're putting it through because it's getting no worse. And then eventually, and this is a very gradual process, that morning tightness does very, very slowly get better and it might take a couple of months, but we're building you up. You're getting stronger. People are enjoying it sure. because they're starting to run again. Um, so mentally it's helping them recover and yeah happy days from there so you've mostly answered the question that i had but the threshold for tolerance so when do you say something's intolerable is is it when you get past that two out of ten mark or when the uh the pain or the discomfort lasts longer after the run so how how would you gauge when you're ready to move up yeah and there is a lot of research around lower limb tendinopathies i can't say specifically for plantar fasciitis, but I use the same guidance. And there's research to show that if you, if your symptoms are below a five out of 10 during your exercises, during your running, and it stays below a five out of 10 after your run and then stabilizes and doesn't flare up over 24 hours, um, then that's, that's okay. You can proceed and you can, um, build up your strength and exercises. You continue running at that same level, but we also need to see a, improvement in your symptoms week by week. So we're not just following, I've just had a five out of 10 pain when I exercise for the last three months. That's not a sign that we're, we're um, doing something appropriately. So there, anything below a five out of 10 that doesn't significantly flare up and stabilizes within 24 hours, I interpret as being quite safe. And uh, the same can be said for a lot of uh, tendons of the lower limb. That's actually a much higher threshold than I expected. Five out of 10 on the pain scale seems pretty bad for me. Yeah. Well, below a five. So we're looking at a four. Yeah. Yeah. 
but just using that as the point where the point of no return. Correct. Um, like it's a more pain tolerance than I would have expected. So that's yeah. uh, that's very interesting from my standpoint. And a lot of time I do see runners who are scared to push themselves to any level of pain. And they think that if it's a one out of 10, that means it's too much. And they really struggle to break into any sort of strengthening or any sort of running because of that fear that's instilled. So it's a lot of education around actually loading uh, the tendons, loading the structures through low levels of pain is actually a good thing because we're challenging it and we're, you're really you're going to get nowhere very quickly if you're too scared to apply any load. And if we know anything about pain and the anxieties and fears that people create, it, it creates a big ceiling for a lot of people if they think that running is bad for me and any level of pain means there's damage and any little niggle means that I'm doing further damage. Um, yeah. So it's calming down a lot of those fears and educating them on, you know, pain, like low levels of pain could be actually good. It means that we're stimulating that structure and then it's just adapting and healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it all needs to be taken in like big picture context of, uh, of what you're trying to accomplish, where you are in your training season, you know, whether, whether you're trying to train or peak for a race or recover. Um, I think all of those, all of those factors color are, you know, are, are decision-making based on the pain as well. Yeah. And I, I think I might just warn people that I'm talking about tendons as well. And if, hopefully there's an accurate diagnosis there, but there are some exceptions. So stress fractures and even shin splints that have been shown to have some bony kind of reactions. We want to keep them to, uh, well, obviously like bone reactions and um, stress fractures, we want to keep pain-free and sometimes, well, often the stress fractures are the exception to a lot of these concepts and the exception to the rule that um, we often give out. Yeah. The rule about, about a little bit of pain is not necessarily a bad thing. You mean? We want to be pain-free when it comes to, and symptom-free when it comes to stress fractures, yeah. And it's often this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral where people completely rest. And I say that's not usually the case. Um, it is the case for stress fractures. We want complete rest. Sometimes we need to put them in cast or like crutches and we really need to take the load off. And yeah, we want to achieve pain-free status when we start reintroducing a lot of loading. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And this is actually a perfect little detour into, you know, something I say a lot is uh, uh, get really good, trusted medical advice, folks. If you're, if you're, you know, having doubts, it's, there's so much information available on the internet and even, you know, shows like ours that are presenting good evidence-based information. Um, it still sometimes takes, well, often takes the the experience and the experienced touch and the experienced eye of a, of a healthcare professional to really tell you what exactly is going on. Cause if uh, to Brody's, you know, as Brody just mentioned, um, if it's a tendon issue, we follow one course of treatment and one set of guidelines for training. And if it's uh, a bone issue, like a stress fracture, then it's a very, very different uh, course and, uh, and training prescription too. So as an athlete going through this, I would wonder at what point do I start investigating the option or the possibility of having a stress fracture uh, compared to something more along the lines of plantar fasciitis? What would be the clues? It, it would behave extremely differently um, depending on the location, like the stress fractures themselves. Uh, like if it's around the foot, it's usually around the forefoot um, and 
wouldn't necessarily be underneath that heel. Uh, it's very rare that you get like a calcaneus stress fracture. Um, like in the shins are very like a common area as well. High up in the hips sometimes, especially for females, like the neck of femur can be a stress fracture um, area, but tends to behave like a vague stiffness after exercise um, is like the very early signs. But as it starts to progress, we're looking at things like night pain. We're looking at things like it's just um, a constant ache, especially with loading, like often with plantar fasciitis and these tendons, they tend to warm up as we like there has this warm up effect after a couple of minutes or 10 minutes of running symptoms aside and go away. But stress fractures get worse as they, um, as they run and tend to load up that structure. And it's usually pretty persistent afterwards. And like I said, that night pain can be, um, particularly, uh, some signs that there's not, there's something not quite right there. Um, so it's just getting a detailed history. It's getting a really nice, um, like listing the characteristics of their pain and just seeing like things aren't really um, fitting. It's not really fitting like a characteristic tendon or like a plantar fasciitis. Um, and that's when you send it for scans if there's any doubt there because often I think there's around about um, four or five months that uh, on average the stress fracture goes misdiagnosed just because it masquerades as something else and it can be really, really tricky. And at that stage, if you've had it for six months and then they diagnose it, it's really tough to, to manage because it's so far down the track. Um, so if you have doubts, not really fitting the pattern of um, a common tendon issue or a common uh, injury that you are familiar with, then uh, you can send them for scans and just have peace of mind. Hmm, good advice. All right, let's move up the leg a little bit while we're, we sort of were talking about shins in, in the stress fracture chat. Um, but let's go to the knees and the uh, and um, the same kind of discussion I'd love to have about what you, you medical lot call uh, patellofemoral pain. So what is it? What are the symptoms? How do we treat it? And what does a prognosis look like? Sure. So um, I'm glad we touched on this. Like the patellofemoral pain is essentially like kneecap pain. And you can fairly easily diagnose it uh, just based on the characteristics. There's some signs of overload usually. And in terms of the location, it's really hard to localize. Like it's really hard to point with one finger with people that have this particular type of pain. Sometimes mm-hmm. if it's um, like a fat pad or a patella tendon or some other tendons around the knee, people like this is where my pain is and they point with one finger, but with patellofemoral pain, they're kind of brushing their finger around certain parts of the kneecap. It's sort of like they're like scrape it along a whole border of a kneecap and say it's somewhere around here. It's really hard to localize. And if we're busting a lot of misconceptions, when I first graduated, we thought that this patellofemoral pain was mainly caused by maltracking or like poor alignment of the kneecap and when you look at the anatomy of the kneecap, it's just floating bone. It's literally just sitting in a groove, not attached by any other joint, but is influenced by tendons and fascia and muscle that all attach onto around the whole body, like every edge of this um, kneecap. And it was theorized that if there was certain weakness or if there was certain tightness around fascia or around tendons that attach onto this, because it's floating, it can kind of drag it across or tilt it or do a whole bunch of things that way. And like that would mean that if it is maltracking, then we release what's tight, we strengthen what's weak, and then it all gets better. 
but there's been uh, that bus uh, that myth has been busted, and there might be some like influence with what I was just describing. But we know now that it's mainly just due to overload, like any other injury. Hmm. The body adapts to um, what it's what you put it through. It adapts to your biomechanics, and often what, when you see people with patellofemoral pain, like anything, there's been a spike in load. There's been in, uh, bump in their speed there's been a bump in their mileage there's been a sudden introduction of hills um, sometimes they've tried changing their running technique or change their surface and then they have knee pain and who's like they would have had the same tracking beforehand they would have had the same tightness the same weakness and um, yeah so a lot of times it's just like any other injury we address their training errors we build up their strength we build up their tolerance we don't we don't release the ITB because you're not doing anything um, if you foam roll or dry needle or have a massage through your ITB. It might feel nice and it might settle down pain for a day or two, yeah. but we're definitely not releasing anything. We're definitely not putting that kneecap back in place and back in alignment um, because that's often unhelpful for runners to know. And, yeah, it, a lot of times if we say it's weak and we're trying to strengthen that weak muscle, people feel better but what we're doing is we're <laughs> making the the joint stronger we're just building up its tolerance yeah. like we would any other um any other joint and so people are like oh that must have been dragging it because i've strengthened up this muscle and they're feeling better but in fact we're just yeah building up the all the muscles around the knee with squats and lunges and everything's feeling a lot better so um it can obviously be quite simple for rehab if you make sure we address what um, these misconceptions that a lot of people have. That's a very interesting uh, revelation for me, actually, because when I suffered from this, I was about 13 or 14. So that was just over 20 years ago, um, which now that I realize it was a long time ago, but uh, it was the same, the same diagnosis or the same attempts to correct the tracking that I had gone through, which like you said, may have been the thinking at the time, but uh, is not the current understanding of the injury. So when this would occur for me was when I was playing American football. So it was around September uh, that I would start and I would go from being moderately active in the summer to all of a sudden uh, going to practices every day, a lot of load and just like a step change in the training load. And it was a lot of very short explosive movements and a huge amount of load going into the the joint itself. So it took several years for this to subside and it really seemed to improve when I, I stayed active all year. So when I was doing uh, more workouts, weightlifting, things like that. So that really, like I said, it's a bit of a revelation because that does very well align with what you had suggested with um, just the keeping the high training load all the time and not not having those big changes would really help the the overall injury. Yeah, and I think like it, it might make sense. It might convince a lot of people based on the behavior of symptoms. If someone does have patellofemoral pain and those structures are particularly irritated, like the next day things like squatting, things like going upstairs, like walking uphill, these sort of things will generate some pain. And if they've been told that, you know, their kneecap is malaligned or, you know, not tracking properly. They can create this belief and this anxiety that, oh, my kneecap's out. This is why all this pain happens when in fact it's just the 
like anything, it's just the the joint has become sensitive because you've overloaded it, and now things like either even sitting for long periods of time or you know negotiating stairs can be particularly harmful. But it stimulates a lot of fear. Oh my god, my body's letting me down. This kneecap is pulling across, and how can I possibly run if my body's letting me down? And I've seen severe cases. I've had someone come into my clinic when I when I was working in um, private practice. He had to con- like he had to hold his knee. If he was sitting and had to stand up, he had to hold his knee in place and stand up. Otherwise, he'd get pain. And he's convinced himself that his kneecap was falling out. He can't rely on his knee anymore. And he has hmm. to physically hold it in place to stand up. And all I did was give him some squats. And he had this for six months, severe pain. And all I gave him was some really nice light squats. And he was all better within two weeks. And a lot of the time, it's not addressing the structure. It's calming down a lot of people's anxieties and um, what they've been told. It's amazing how much our mind influences our perception, well, of anything, but of pain specifically in this case, how it's, you know, if you, if, if you've hypnotized almost or convinced yourself that, uh, that this is the way that it is, this is the way you're going to experience the world. Um, and it's, yeah, it, that, that education piece that you mentioned, that's key. Absolutely. I have like three dedicated episodes on my podcast talking about pain science and how all of your fears and all of your past experiences and just context to your injury influences your recovery, influences the intensity of pain and influences all a whole bunch of things. And yeah, it's a really, really interesting topic and one that like every runner, every injured runner should definitely know. I think that's a follow-up follow-up conversation with you, Brody. Another interesting interaction that we've actually discussed in the past is kind of pain-related, but it was uh, it was using swearing to improve the <laughs> uh, the performance you have at the end of an interval. So uh. um, just the the mental impact of getting some kind of psychological release. So it wasn't specifically for acute pain; it was more just the suffering from finishing the interval. It was perception of effort. Yeah, yeah. So and music was another part of that too. So. But it's super interesting because your your brain is in control of so much more than people think. The brain's everything. All pain comes from the brain, one hundred percent of the time. No questions asked. Yep, totally. So um, that that perception of pain aside, um, you mentioned some some therapeutic physio weightlifting exercises. What would you do uh, for if it was classic patellofemoral pain? What what would your prescription be? Yeah, and similar to a lot of these injuries, like hands-on therapy can work, and but we're not trying to convince ourselves of what's achieving. Like releasing um, some muscle, like some massage, maybe some taping, all of these do a really good job of settling down pain. And whether that's a placebo, whether it's like calming down the mind, um, whether it is like just desensitizing that area, it's only in the short term, it's only for a day or two, but can be really nice to implement while we're introducing some form of loading and as long as we're including that loading component and sometimes it only needs to be the loading component but um, those manual therapies can there is a place for those manual therapies if it is effective for that person Mm -hmm. but loading is definitely what the science shows Um, potentially some stretching the evidence doesn't support stretching but i know i've had this similar type of pain in the past i know just doing some really light quad stretches along with some strengthening exercises have has been beneficial for me just anecdotally but we're looking at uh, squats we're looking at lunges we're just looking at the lower leg um, mechanics and trying to put people through less low levels of pain, making sure there's no significant 
flare up during these exercises or after these exercises, making sure it's well stabilized. We might need to reduce the weight of a certain exercise. We might need to reduce the range of a certain exercise. So we're only doing quarter squats instead of mm-hmm. doing full squats. If they're really struggling with pain uh, during throughout the movement, then we just do isometrics. We can do some really nice wall squats uh, out of range. We can do like a, a quarter squat against a wall. We can transition that to single leg. So you're really firing up your quad without moving the knee joint at all. can be a really nice option. Um, what else do we do? We just, in if someone's a runner and they have low levels of pain and they're back to running, if they elicit some sort of, say, overreaching, um, their initial contact with the ground is too far in front of the body or their cadence is really low, these can be things that we can manipulate to really reduce um, loads through the knee. And there's research to show that even if you increase your running cadence by 5 to 10% above your preferred cadence, that can reduce loads on the knee by 20%. And sometimes, if we know hmm. that patellofemoral pain is just due to spikes in load and too much load for the knee, then increasing your cadence and reducing that load by 20% is a significant change and sometimes can be all the difference. So this is a bit of a digression, but because um, I, I think running mechanics is a fascinating topic and not not the topic of this podcast, but I'm going to ask because you brought it up. Uh, when you're changing cadence, you're saying, you know, bring it up 5-10% above uh, self-selected. Uh, is the difference the the cadence or the or the re- reduction in the kind of the the overstride and then the resultant ground reaction force? What do you think? Well, here's here's the thing with cadence: it like interweaves with so many different factors. And totally. if you increase your step rate, then <clears throat> you're no longer you, you're unable to reach out in front of your body. And if you are someone with a really narrow step width or a crossover gait pattern, if you increase your cadence, you can no longer have the time to reach over to the other side of the body. And it's mm. it all like interweaves. And sometimes when it comes to a lot of um, gait retraining, sometimes all people do is just increase their cadence because they know that it, it manipulates so many different things. And um, yeah, it's like the, even like the vertical oscillation just diminishes because you have to keep ticking your legs over so quick. Um, I say so quick, but it's only just a, a, a slight adjustment. Uh, yeah, so it has a factor on all those things that you described and, yeah, a couple more. Cool. Okay, back to uh, the actual patellofemoral syndrome. Um, so now we're, we're, you know, we've got this diagnosis. We have faith in the diagnosis. We're doing some, uh, some knee exercises like lunges and squats and potentially isometric versions of those exercises like you mentioned. Um, what's our return to play uh, uh, prognosis for this one? Yeah, it would definitely depend because this does come with a lot of the sporting, like team sports as well. So it depends on what you need to get back to. Uh, if mm-hmm. someone, well, let's like, say we're runners or cyclists uh, and, well, swimming is probably not going to bug you too much, but yeah. you might actually on the bike, but and yeah. it definitely will on the, on the road. It's actually quite common with cyclists uh, if they do push themselves or maybe they've changed their their seat height or adjusted their bike and then they've decided to do a whole bunch of k's on the bike um the knee can be loaded uh beyond what it's capable of doing so um cyclists as well we're just following the um the same the same concepts that we know with running and cycling we just put them through we introduce a low load and it might be a walk run program it might just be really light on the bike so you're not pushing down on the pedals as much and it might only be for half an hour to an hour on the bike, um, avoiding hills, and then just seeing how the knee responds. 
if the knee responds really well and it's not flared up the next day, then we tick that box and say that was a success. Let's do a little bit more next time. And it can it can just be as simple as that. And all the while you're still progressing your strength exercises. I, I feel like I don't need to go into detail with that because it is as simple as, you know, jumps, squats, lunges, and then just mm-hmm. progressing your way through that. But the reintroduction into your sport is just simple as trial and error and interpreting those symptoms accurately over 24 hours. So similar to what your prescription was for the plantar uh, fasciitis, what's the right what's the right term for it? I'm going to start using the right uh, word now. Plantar fasciopathy. I actually use plantar fasciitis just because it's so well known, and you know, it's just what people, <laughs> people know. know so what I just mean. use it. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, no, I, I, yeah. Ultimately, in language, you just have to get your idea across. I'm with you there. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, you know, I fear that people will just realize that physio is really, really simple because it is like exactly the same <laughs> thing with plantar fasciitis and this patellofemoral pain. It's exactly the same. You're just reintroducing load. It's just trial and error. Yep. We're interpreting those symptoms accurately. And like it, physio can get so complex with different type of exercises or being like really smart with exercises, but it can be yep. really, really simple as well. I know. And the simpler it is, the, the honestly, the easier it is to communicate to people and the more likely they are to do it. So it's like, there's, it's all upside for keeping it simple. Yeah. Which is why the, the podcast itself is doing really well, because I just, I break it down to really simple concepts and like reiterate a lot of these concepts for different people. And yeah, it <laughs> sticks. Perfect. So along the simple guidelines, um, asking the same question, basically I asked before, but is there risk of misdiagnosing yourself or confusing this um, this type of pain with something else that would lead you to pursue the wrong type of treatment without getting that medical advice. So are people going to put themselves in a position where they could be doing harm rather than good? Yeah. And it's a good question. I, I, I recommend that you keep asking it because a misdiagnosis is can be detrimental and having the right diagnosis is crucial in the early days. Things that kind of behave like patellofemoral pain um, would sometimes be like the cartilage, this um, chondromyelitia, which is like the cartilage underneath the kneecap can be quite irritated and sometimes damaged. Um, So it would behave something quite similar because it's hard to localize and loading up the knee will cause pain. Um, But there's there's usually like a different history. It's very, very gradual onset and um, it can be very, very severe with very low levels of loading but can like a simple scan can have a look for that. Um, injuries around the knee, like a, the patella tendon is very similar location to the kneecap, but mm-hmm. will have a very, will behave like a tendon, like we talked about before, rather than this particular kneecap. Like if we were to load up the tendon, sometimes if we, if it's, if it's a patella tendon, when you mm-hmm. load up the, the painful tendon, the more you load it, the worse the pain gets. Um, let's just say if you go from doing a squat to a single leg squat to hopping, um, to hopping with load, if you progress your way up that, the pain will get worse and worse and worse. Whereas with patellofemoral pain, it tends to be the same level of pain the whole entire time. Um, so it's just like little things like that. Um, other diagnoses, sometimes like osteoarthritis of the knee, which will be like deep in the joint and will usually present like the early signs will be just stiffness, like morning stiffness. The joint just feels really stiff, which is uncommon with patellofemoral pain. So, yeah, it's uh, an accurate diagnosis is key. Patellofemoral pain is the most common injury to the knee, especially in runners. 
And um, yeah, if it's just not feeling right, if it's just not responding to treatment, which is a big one, um, if it's not responding to the treatment of patellofemoral pain, then that's when you need to prick your ears up and start thinking that we might need to start exploring other avenues. Um, but yeah, that's that's um, usually my advice with that. Cool. Yeah, I've uh, I have uh, still suffer from uh, uh, patellar tendon issues, but that's that I earned on the bike. That was too much hill work, too much low cadence, too much force through the knee, um, and uh, and yeah. But it was it's it's fairly easy to manage, I find. But it is it is a little bit different than what you described. It. Yeah, and you're probably finding it's easier to manage because you're maintaining your strength as well. Yeah, and I have like certain certain uh, even when I when I let the strength training go, there's a certain exercise that I do that is like a mainstay that I always keep doing it, and that's that that keeps it under control. And it's just it's the it's the reverse Nordic hamstring uh, exercise, which I really like. Ah, uh, yeah, good one. Yeah, I love that one. It's uh, it's worked really well for me for that. Um, okay, let's uh, let's keep moving up the uh, the lower appendage and uh, get to the, as I call it, the sub butt pain, the uh, the proximal hamstring um, issue, which is super common in runners, especially. And I think you're gonna talk about this, Brody, but especially when when folks folks are just starting to do either hill training or or track work is when it starts to pop its head up. So uh, again, tell us what it is, uh, what it looks like, or what it feels like. Rather, um, how do we treat it and uh, how do we return to play? Yeah, sure. So proximal hamstring tendinopathy behaves like any other tendon. So there's usually a flare up. It usually goes beyond its capacity to adapt with whatever training you're doing. Uh, and yeah, it will start eliciting pain. The hamstring tendon attaches right up on that sitting bone. So like you said, that sub butt and can be very like it's pretty much like under the butt like gluteal fold and mm -hmm. sometimes people can interpret it as hip pain some people can interpret it as glute pain and uh yeah there can be some sh some um signs that shows that it's directly the hamstring tendon as soon as you load up the hamstring with particular exercises it will be extremely painful and so that's how uh, I like to meet the diagnosis, but yes, sprinting, um, people who participate in a lot more hills, there's a lot more compression with load. Um, especially when it comes to the hamstring, you, there's tensile force, which increases its load, but there's also compression forces, which increase the load. And if you combine tensile force with compression force, so maybe perhaps on the bike, maybe perhaps running uphill where you're in that higher levels of hip flexion, but then you're loading up that, that hamstring in those deep levels of hip flexion. You're combining that force with compression because it wraps around that bone, that sitting bone. And when it activates, it kind of presses that tendon into that bone oh, and interesting. gets irritated. So um, that's why people with, uh, say, a couple of months of high hamstring tendinopathy sitting is really, really uncomfortable for them because they're continuously compressing that tendon underneath that sitting bone because you're directly applying like pressure to that sitting bone and the tendon wraps around it. So that's when it could become particularly aggravating. When you said, Brody, when you said, um, you know, when you're loading in in compression and tension at the same time, the engineer in me is like, what the hell are you talking about? That's not possible. You're either in compression or in tension. <laughs> but then, but then you explained it. It was like, yeah, the muscle, the muscle is obviously in tension because that's how muscles work, but there is compression on the, on the tendon as it goes around the bone. And that makes sense. So yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I'm with you. And this now. is how this is how like the the muscles produce movement. It needs to wrap around to the other side of the bone so that when it activates, the 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 joint moves. And 
that's it's nice because that's how we get movement but it's not nice for the tendon if it's put beyond its capacity to adapt Mm -hmm. and tendons will like won't always flare up if you do compression like people sit for long periods of time and their tendons don't flare up but it's when it exceeds that capacity when you've done way too much when you've had that spiking load that's when it becomes quite nasty and similar to this pain rest weakness downward spiral that you you would have been able to tolerate two hours of sitting prior to this but now because it's sensitive and it's weak sometimes sitting for 10 minutes can flare it up and i see very chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy runners and they've stopped sitting altogether they've they've only they only do short car rides Mm -hmm. just to drop off their kids at school because they're just scared of sitting down because all that compression is really irritating their tendon Uh, but I, i i digress a little bit the um symptoms so there'll be pain directly underneath there it very rarely travels further down into the hamstring sometimes if there's some cytic nerve involvement or some high levels of irritability it will uh, radiate down into the hamstring but that's rarely the case it's usually localized underneath that sitting bone Um, if you do like a bridge but a bridge where you have your heels really far away from your body so the legs are almost out straight and then you Mm -hmm. bring your hips up into a bridge that can sometimes spike a lot of pain because you're activating those hamstrings um there's a test where you you kind of like stand up and you pretend to take your shoe off by like digging your heel into your um the the other foot and just trying to slide your shoes off um sometimes that or just as simple as like standing um, facing away from a wall, but having your back up against the wall and trying to push your heel into the the wall. So you're pushing your heel backwards. Yep. That can activate the high hamstring and really trigger a lot of pain. Um, so there's some simple tests that you can do to isolate the hamstring activation. And if there's pain, you can almost guarantee that it's going to be a high hamstring tendinopathy, especially if there's a history of spike in training. Um, this is where triathletes really um, uh, are at risk because they they work on the bike like really really intensely and then they have to get off the bike and do a short sprint and that is just incredible amount of load through the hamstring the faster you run the more your hamstring kicks in uh as well as like the adductors and things like that but if you combine that with a hard session on the bike and then quickly get off the bike and then you're sprinting it is so much load through the hamstring that that's why i see it quite commonly in triathletes and uh, yeah, sim- like, do you want me to move into like exercises and rehab or do you have any other follow-up questions? No, I think, but what, what's interesting is when you said avoiding car rides, I remember when I first started running, I'm an adult onset runner. So when I was in my, let's say mid twenties, maybe when I first started running with any kind of structure and regularity, uh, I remember like car rides sucking. <laughs> like I could not, I could not go for an hour car ride and be comfortable. It was, uh, it was really uncomfortable. And the pain was exactly like below the gluteal fold. And I never, you know, back then I didn't, I didn't know anything. I wasn't even, I was, I wasn't even on the Dunning Kruger curve. I wasn't even at the, at the foot of it. Um, I, it was just like, oh, my butt hurts. Um, and now it makes sense because a little bit later I figured out that I had this, this issue that would present in other forms, but the early signs were, were those car rides. And that's, uh, you know, you talking about it now turns on that light bulb in my head. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, let's move on to corrective exercises. Cause I think that's the next step in the discussion. Yeah. And if, like I said, if this is caught early enough, it is just as simple as tra- changing your mileage and then the, it just recovers on its own. So if you've caught it within a week or within a couple of weeks and it's low levels of irritability, low levels of pain, you're still tolerating some compression and you're particularly strong, by all means, 
like just make some slight adjustments to your training and slowly build your way back up and everything's all fine. So again, ideal scenario, very rare that someone has that level. They're so level headed and has that level of um, sensibility, but um, yeah, that's ideal. If someone is down the track of, let's say they're at that moderate form, they're not totally severe, but they have um, levels of pain. Let's just say if they go for a run, it's flared up the next day. That's when we really start seeing, okay, where can we catch them in this downward spiral? Where can we start loading them appropriately and still focusing on maybe low levels of pain during an exercise, but it can be starting off with some bridges. It can be starting off with um, like a bridge, like a single leg bridge or single leg bridge with their foot up on a a chair, Mm -hmm. really loads up the hamstring nicely. Um, If it's not tolerating levels of compression, so if if they're finding... um, loading up that hamstring in compression is painful or sitting is particularly irritated, then we start with strengthening outside of compression. And so that would be bridging with your feet really far away from your body. Um, That would be, say, doing bridges on like a Swiss ball or on a chair. So you're away from these like really deep levels of hip flexion Mm -hmm. Um, or some isometrics. Just a bridge isometric is a really nice one as well that keeps it out of compression. Uh, but then we want to slowly introduce compression because, you know, you're going to need to withstand compression when it comes to running and cycling and sitting and your daily life. So and compression happens start... in, in hip, sorry to interrupt, compression happens in hip flexion, right? In this case? Correct. So if you are um, a, a, a test that we like to do, so if someone, so if an athlete's like laying on the, on the ground and they have their hip and knee bent at 90 degrees and they dig their heel down in something. Usually the therapist will put their their shoulder underneath their heel and they're pushing their heel down into that shoulder because you're in 90 degrees hip flexion and then you're activating that hamstring by pushing that heel down into the therapist's shoulder. That can spark a lot of pain because you're loading up the hamstring and it's into compression. Um, So that's that kind of action. But if you were to do a bridge and you were to hold that bridge at the top, you're in zero degrees of hip flexion, but you're still like strengthening up the hamstring that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can be a really nice starting point if the hamstring isn't tolerating compression. Sometimes if it's stable enough and it tolerates compression, we start with compressive exercises straight away. And that might be things like uh, deadlifts. Deadlifts are a really nice one. I like doing, most people are familiar with those Nordic hamstring drops, but yep. I do this variation where you only dip at the hips. Uh, I'm not too sure if you guys are familiar with that. It's kind of like a dipping bird sort of action. Okay. But you're loading up the hamstrings. If you can imagine, say, you're you're on your knees um, on the ground and your heels are um, your heels are just like stuck underneath something, so they're locked into place. And then you just dip at the hips and only at the hips. So you're just you flexing the forward. hips, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so that's tremendous amount of eccentric load through the hamstring and it's slowly going into deeper levels of flexion. And so you're compressing and it's immense like strength that's required. So it's kind of like this end stage strengthening exercise, but can be done in really like, um, like low levels of range. So we're introducing a little bit of compression, but then as you start to tolerate it more, you can go into deeper levels of hip flexion and it just, yeah, it's amazing because tendons, like we said, tendons respond really well to eccentrics. So doing some really slow, but really heavy eccentric work can really help the tendons recover. Um, So that's a nice one that I like doing. And then we're 
because we're introducing levels of compression, we then introduce longer and longer sitting because we don't want people to have the fear of sitting. Sure. I have people that see me online and they've had proximal hamstring tendinopathy for five years and they've just given up sitting because they have a deep fear of sitting and there's a constant, like we said, with uh, the pain, the brain, the fears, the anxieties, it's really calming down their beliefs and really trying to address that you can sit and all we need to do is just get that tendon to start tolerating more levels of compression and then we're just sitting for longer and longer. The fears and anxieties start to dampen and that's when you start like really making a lot of progress. Um, so it can be tricky. And this same with plantar, the plantar fasciitis, this particular condition can last so long because it does start to affect your day-to-day life. Similar to with plantar fasciitis, sometimes walking, sometimes being on your feet, sometimes um, your occupation can be affected. This, like if you're, if you've got a desk job and you have proximal hamstring tendinopathy and you've had it for a couple of months, it's becoming really irritable and you no longer can sit for longer than 15 minutes. It starts to impact your day-to-day life. You can't sit down at the table and have family, like have dinner with your family. You can't go to the movies. You can't like do these sort of things. So it really starts to um, impact their day-to-day life, which again, um, the mental health aspect of things becomes a big, uh, a tricky topic and something that we need to address. And so, yeah, tolerating levels of compression, the right amount of education and reintroducing the sitting and all those things that create the anxieties is a big step. No, that's a re- that's an excellent point about mental health. And obviously during this very atypical time, that's that should be top of mind for everyone. You know, we all want to be, we all want to do the sport that we love, but if it's, if there's help that we can get for issues that are affecting mental health, that's a, that's an extra win, I think. Yeah, agreed. Um, Brody, this is an awesome summary. I think, um, there's, this was a, this was a deep dive and, uh, you know, we asked you not to pull any, any technical punches at the start of the show and you didn't. And that, that, I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, I, I'm sure that our listeners got quite a bit out of it and, uh, well, uh, you know, as, as you were talking, I've been, I was kind of jotting down some notes about possible follow-up conversations, specifically the, um, the topic of, of pain and the, uh, you know, the brain's role, well, overwhelming role in it. So I think that's, uh, that's an interesting one to revisit oh, yeah. at, a, at another time. I would love to have a further discussion yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah. Pain science. It's massive. Yeah. And cause, because pain, it's not the same as, as perception of effort, but there's, there's overlap. So even if it's, even if you're not, you know, a chronic pain sufferer and you're not talking about, you know, pain due to injury or some kind of neurological condition or anything, but, um, being able to, being able to deal with, um, with the perception of effort and, and reframing perception of effort in, in training and in racing has a very obvious performance enhancing uh, benefit as well. It's, it's like, if we talk about performance, there's like all this emerging evidence over the last couple of years around the brain and like, uh, I'm not too sure if you guys have read Endure by Alex Hutchinson. He's he's, he's a local homeboy over here. He's uh, he's a Toronto Toronto guy. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard him Um, speak. He's a, he's a super, super interesting guy. Yeah. So like the mind and the elastic limits of human potential. And we're now starting to realize that fatigue isn't just like the, the body and it isn't just lactic acid. It isn't just like the muscles getting tired or it's the brain telling the body, you know, when to start pulling back because it's in fear it's like in danger and you can increase your performance if you calm down a lot and realize what your true potential is similar to pain like if we realize that all pains from the brain and we 
recognize that context and beliefs and past experiences do influence a lot of our recovery and the intensity of pain that we do experience, then we're starting off on the right foot. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't want to get too far into it because I think we should do a, a standalone episode on it, Brody. Cool. A little teaser. Yeah, a little teaser, exactly. Yeah, leave leave them wanting more. So um, with that, I think this is a great place to wrap. I also have to go get my kid who's going to be like kicked out of daycare soon. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, we mentioned the podcast a little bit earlier on. Brody, do you want to talk about it for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's the Run Smarter podcast. If you want to, um, like my goal is to have a lot, like for the runner to gain clarity and control. So clarity around what to do if you are injured or how to reduce your risk of injury and then just control with your running, just making sure you're doing all the right things and you're reducing your risk of injury as much as possible. Uh, so yeah, I bust a lot of myths. I interview a lot of researchers and health professionals and I do a lot of solo episodes as well. So if you want to learn more and you want to start training smarter, you can just go to the Run Smarter podcast. Yeah, I, I've listened to a few of your episodes, obviously now um, when we were having our exchange and I, I definitely plug this show. It's uh, it's good. It's not, you know, there's no fluff. It's, uh, it's not overly complicated by any stretch but it's all based on evidence and there's you know there was nothing that that Brody or any of his guests uh, said on the show that any that raised any of my red flags there's no like you know woo woo you know non non evidence based uh, stuff in there so it's uh, it definitely has my seal of approval on that Thank you. So listeners with that, um, I got to go pick up Malcolm. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. And um, if you enjoy the show, give us a uh, a five-star review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Uh, Better still, write a review. Um, Consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash endurance innovation. And of course, check out the, the Run Smarter podcast with our new friend Brody. Thanks for listening, everyone.